Okay, if you have a Bible you'd like to turn to Luke chapter 16. And I'm going to read from verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, Remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus, in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So this morning, Jesus is telling us a story, and he begins the story by introducing our two key protagonists, the two characters in the lead roles in this particular story, and from the start, he draws our attention to the great chasm that separates their lives. One man wears expensive clothes. Purple is the the most expensive color. It's a royal color. And that is what he wears as his, his gown. And linen is the most expensive material from which clothes are made at the time. Moreover, the fine linen refers to his undergarments. So this man is so rich that even his underwear has designer labels. So we can see... He's a rich man. He dresses in the absolute best that he can buy. The other man, Lazarus, is clothed effectively in sores. One man can afford to cook far more than he's actually able to eat so that he can just throw out the excess. There's none of, uh, none of this thrifty tips about reusing uh, your leftovers and things like that for this person. He just throws it out. And at this time, the rich would show off their wealth by cooking multiple dishes, a whole array of different foods, and they might only sort of pick up a few of these dishes. Everything else would just be excess. It would be thrown out. 
So I heard recently that uh, around about the similar sort of time, the, the emperor of China um, would serve for his dinner, would be cooked dozens and dozens of different dishes. But he was not allowed to eat more than three bites from any one dish. And everything else would be thrown away. And apparently this was so that no one would be able to tell what his favorite food was. Because whatever you gave him, he'd only ever eat three bites of it. And so no one could try and, uh, if you'll pardon the pun, curry favor with the emperor by making him his favorite meal because you wouldn't know what it was. But everything else was just thrown away. The food waste was, was appalling. And so we see how rich this man is because he can just throw out everything uh, that he isn't interested in eating. The other man was penniless, a beggar, living in a world without social security, a world without food banks. So all he had to live off, to survive on, was whatever surplus food the wealthy people were willing to throw his way. One man was throwing dinner parties for his friends every day. The other man was shunned by society because he was considered unclean. Unclean because he was destitute. Unclean because he had a skin disease and was covered in sores. Unclean because he was too weak to keep away the dogs who were themselves an unclean animal and would be coming up and licking him and therefore making him unclean through the contact he had with them. So in this story, it is as though Jesus wants to really emphasize the extent to which this person would be absolutely shunned by the people around him by sort of really laying it on one after another. So, so his listeners would be thinking, oh, he's a beggar. Yes, right, so we... Um, so we kind of don't want to get too close to him for that reason. And then, oh, he's got a skin disease. Oh, that's even worse. Definitely keep your distance. And then, oh, he's in contact with the dogs. This gets worse and worse. So two men, two men leading very different lives. But as I've been describing them, I wonder, where do your sympathies lie? Because in any film, you'd be asking yourselves, right, so who's the goody and who's the baddie in this particular story? So who would you say is the goody and who is the baddie in this story? Well, to the people listening to Jesus tell this story, the rich man would be the good guy. To them, wealth, prosperity, was a sign of God's favor. Poverty, Crippling diseases, things like that, they were a sign of his punishment. There was an occasion when Jesus and his disciples are walking along the road and they see a blind man begging at the side of the road. And the disciples turn to Jesus and they ask him, Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? To us, that seems an incredibly callous question to ask when you see someone in that condition. But for them in their worldview, it was just a given. This person's blind, so somebody has sinned here. It's either him or it's his parents. So they asked Jesus, who was it? Their assumption was the blindness must be a punishment. That was the worldview of their time. 
And so the other side of the coin for that is wealth, success. These things must be a sign, a reward for moral virtue. So they would look at the rich man in this story and say, wow, he must be a really good guy. Look how blessed he has been by God. And this beggar, with all these things that have happened to him, he really must have done something bad to be punished so much. And sadly, today you could go to some churches in some parts of the world and hear a message being brought that is not completely dissimilar to that worldview. A message that says that, well, the will of, your, of God for your life is health, wealth, and happiness. God's will for you is that, uh, is that you're always going to be healthy, that you're going to be materially well-off, prosperous, and that you'll be free from anxieties, free from worry. This is God's will for you, and all you've got to do is just summon up sufficient faith to claim these things that God wants to give you, and you'll have them. You'll live this life of material prosperity. You'll be free from disease. You'll be free from unhappiness. Therefore, if you're not wealthy, if you're suffering from physical or psychological illnesses, well, it's because you, you didn't have enough faith, you know? didn't have enough faith to claim these things and so in their eyes still the rich man in this story well he's the man of faith receiving all the blessings that God has for him the poor man well he's fallen short there he's he's failed just didn't have enough faith so those were the assumptions that Jesus listeners were making to some degree, there's still places where that sort of message is being believed. So the crowd who are listening to Jesus tell this story, they've got it sorted out in their minds, right? We know who the good guy is. We know who the bad guy is. But then comes the dramatic twist. Then comes the moment where people will be tweeting the spoilers because here's the big twist, because both the characters die and they experience a total reversal in their situations when they do. It's the beggar who is brought to heaven and it's the rich man who ends up in hell. So the poor man, it turns out, was not poor because he was a sinner and the rich man was not rich as a reward for his holiness. For Jesus' listeners, this is a message and a moment that is going to take them completely by surprise. You can imagine the sort of ripple of gasps going round as Jesus says this, because surely this is the wrong way round. Now again, if we think about what's our attitude to hearing this story, well, if you told that to a Western crowd today, nobody would be surprised people would think, well, of, of course this is the case. Because our worldview has shifted in totally the opposite direction from the worldview of the people in Jesus' time. Because we can make our own assumptions about who's the, the good guy and who's the bad guy, and why is that. 
Because early on in church history, you see the idea that poverty and holiness go hand in hand become, became commonplace. And as a result of that, in Western culture, that idea for centuries has been seeping into Western culture. That poverty and holiness amount to the same thing. And then furthermore, from Eastern religions coming into Western culture in, in the 60s and, and after that, came a similar message. So that in our worldview, there is this image of the holy man. And we know he's holy because he's taken a vow of poverty and he has no possessions of his own. Whether that was the, the sort of the Roman Catholic friar wandering the, the lanes in medieval England, or whether it's the, uh, the Buddhist monks that you'll see in the town centers today. The holy man, we know he's holy because he's poor, because he has no material possessions, and that somehow has then elevated him to this perfect and pure state. And then, of course, there is the character in the movies who we see, and we know immediately he must be the villain because he's rich. Turns up in his flash car. He owns a, a big company, and immediately you think, ah, he's going to be no good, isn't he? We know that because he's rich. And so we have that assumption in our culture. And yet this parable is also challenging that assumption. Because nowhere in this parable does it say that the rich man has ended up in this place of torment because he was rich. And nowhere does it say that Lazarus has ended up in heaven because he was poor. The story makes no connection really between anything these characters actually do or say in their lives and where they finished up after they died. There is a message coming through in this parable that your social status in this world is no indication of your spiritual status before God. The idea that we earn material blessings from God through the way that we live, either whether it's by having enough faith or whether it's by following religious regulations and things like that, and also the idea that being poor is more holy than being rich are both different forms of legalism. They're both ways of saying that actually through my outward behavior, I can earn God's favor. Whether that favor is expressed through God blessing me with material things or whether it's that by actually shunning all material things and living in poverty, I can then earn God's blessing in the next life, both of those things are just different forms of legalism. And this parable is showing that actually outward behavior is not something that's a mark of whether you've earned God's favor or not. What matters is whether in our hearts we have received God's forgiveness and committed our lives to him. And it's here that the parable shows us what was the problem with the rich man. And the problem was not that he was rich. The problem was not specifically anything particular in the lifestyle that he was living or the wealth that he had. His problem was he had rejected God. His heart 
was not following God. And the parable shows us a couple of, in a couple of different ways what was the state of this man's heart. The first thing we, we can see is when he realizes that he's finished up in hell, he's in this place of torment, he asks Abraham to send Lazarus to tell his brothers to repent. Which would certainly make, if it had happened for an interesting scene in the film, because the ghost of Lazarus returning to haunt these five brothers, to call them to repent like something from a Christmas carol, that's exactly what he's asking for. He wants the sort of equivalent of Marley's ghost to go and appear before these five rich brothers and call them to repent. But Abraham says, well, they don't need that. They have Moses and the prophets. And what he meant was that these, the, the rich man and all of his brothers are growing up in the Jewish society in which Jesus and his disciples grew up and lived. Here was a society where every Sabbath you would go to the synagogue, you would hear the word of God, you would be learning the word of God. They had, they had Moses, so they had the, the first books of the Old Testament, the books of Moses, and they have the writings of the prophets. They have all of that. This is what they've been brought up with. This is what they hear. They are hearing the word of God. They know it. But Abraham is saying they've already refused to listen to that, as had the rich man himself, of course. So Abraham says, you had all of this. You have ample opportunity to repent and to follow God. But you had rejected it. And Abraham also tells this rich man, he says, interesting phrase to him. He says, in your life, you received your good things. And it's interesting, he calls them, he says, you received your good things. In other words, he's saying, you got all the things that you considered good when you were alive. You got everything that you wanted. You had a choice. You could have chosen to follow God. But instead, you worshipped the material wealth that you had. As far as that, you were concerned, that was all that you needed. That was all good to you. And you totally ignored God. Because all you were interested in actually was just living your life to enjoy these material blessings that you had to enjoy the fine clothes, to enjoy the feasts, to enjoy the social life, all of those things. That was what you considered to be good. And so you ignored everything else. And that leads us to the second indication that we had to the state of the rich man's heart, which was that in his enjoyment of his own riches and his wealth, he totally ignored the need that was on his own doorstep. Day after day, Lazarus sat at the gate of the rich man's house. Day after day, the rich man enjoyed his lavish feasts with his friends. But did he ever step out of his front door to meet the need that was on his doorstep? It doesn't look like it, because the text says only that Lazarus desired to eat the scraps that fell from the rich man's table. 
It doesn't say that he was ever actually allowed to do so. So perhaps the rich man completely ignored the need on his own doorstep and never even threw out the scraps from his own meals to feed him. And so there is an indication here of the state of the rich man's heart. Not in the fact, again, that he was rich, but in the fact that he totally ignored the opportunities to use what he had been given to bless others. Repeatedly in the Bible, we see this connection between people's heart towards God and their heart towards the poor and the vulnerable who are around them. At its root of it, we see in the Bible that the heart of God is filled with love for the poor and the vulnerable members of society. And so the law of God in the Old Testament contained many instructions for God's people to care for the poor, to look after those who were in need, to look after those who were weak and vulnerable. And it follows then that when people reject God, they often cease to care for the poor because they do not share God's heart. And certainly we see that pattern of behavior happening in the Old Testament. So when the kingdoms of Israel and Judah turned their backs on God and began worshiping idols and worshiping the pagan gods of the people around them, hand in hand with that comes a change in their attitude towards the poor. And so the Old Testament prophets, as well as repeatedly warning the people of Israel and Judah about the fact that they're rejecting God, are also warning them about the fact that they are mistreating the poor and have ceased to care for the vulnerable members of their society. So, for example, in Amos chapter 8 and verse 4, the prophet says, Hear this. You who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, When will the new moon be over that we may sell grain, and the Sabbath that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make the ephah small and the shekel great, and deal deceitfully with false balances, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, and sell the chaff of the wheat? So in, the, in those verses there, we see side by side, firstly, the rejection of God because they've got contempt for the Sabbath and for the new moon feast that God had said that they should celebrate and enjoy to worship him on those occasions, to dedicate those times to him. Well, they're contemptuous of those things. They're obviously still outwardly observing them. But in their hearts, what they're saying is, oh, come on, when's it going to be over? I want to get back to business, to making money. So they've rejected God. And then also this is reflected in their attitude to the poor, that they just see them as commodities to be bought and sold, to be trampled on, to be cheated with corruption, with false balances. And so their attitude to the poor is an indication of how far their hearts are from God. And then Again, on the other side of the coin, we see what happens 
when people turn back to God. And so when you look at the account of the early church in the book of Acts, it's interesting that Acts makes a point on more than one occasion of describing what was the attitude of the early church towards the poor and needy. So, for example, in Acts chapter 4 and verse 32, it says, The full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belongs to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not one needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. So once again, within those verses, you see both the heart towards God and the attitude to the poor. Because we see the apostles are preaching about the Lord Jesus. There is great grace upon them. So we see kind of where their hearts are, that they are reveling in the grace of God and in the message of the gospel. And hand in hand with that then goes an attitude towards the poor, that they want to make sure that there nobody amongst them is in need that those who have been blessed with material prosperity are completely open-handed with what they have, not holding it, not holding on to it, but seeing what they have as something they can use to bless others. Now, looking at our culture again, what's interesting to bear in mind is that probably if you read those verses out, to people in our culture around us here who were not Christians, their attitude would be, well, of course, that's exactly how it should be. Because in our culture, with its charity appeals and its telethons, such behavior as you read in those verses doesn't actually seem very unusual. It is, in our culture, just how you would expect good people to behave. But I say again that that is because of the result of over a thousand years of Christian influence in Western culture. That even in today's very secular culture, these things and attitudes have become so deeply ingrained that secular people also accept them as normal and good and the decent way that one should behave. But that was not the case at the time when these events were happening that we read about in the book of Acts. I've already uh, talked about the attitude of Jesus' listeners to the two characters in his parable, their attitude towards people who were rich and people who were poor. And that was not only a facet of sort of the very religious Jewish culture of the time, but actually even within the prevailing Greek, or what they call Hellenist culture, of the, all of the peoples and the nations around and all the places where Paul goes to to preach the gospel where the early churches are being established, their attitude towards the poor was totally different to the attitude that we have in the culture around us today. And I believe that's why 
this is something that is commented on more than once in the book of Acts. It is because this was revolutionary, radical behavior. This was the church behaving in a way that was totally alien to the culture around it. One historian of the culture of the time wrote this about the attitude of the culture in which the early Christians lived. The gods, he's talking here about the, the Greek gods and the Roman gods who were worshipped by the pagan religions of the time. The gods cared nothing for the poor. The heroes of the Iliad, favorites of the gods, golden and predatory, had scorned the weak and downtrodden. So too had the philosophers. The starving deserved no sympathy. Beggars were best rounded up and deported. Pity risked undermining a wise man's self-control. So that was the culture in which these early Christians are living. So you can see how radical their behavior would seem to the people around them. In the 4th century AD, there was a Roman emperor known as Julian the Apostate, and although he was uh, I think it was a nephew of the Emperor Constantine, he rejected Christianity and he tried to reintroduce the worship of the pagan Roman gods. Now, I'm assuming here that uh, his title, Julian the Apostate, is not an example of nominative determinism, uh, that uh, he, he hasn't rejected Christianity because he was given the name Julian the Apostate. Um, that soon came later. But Julian the Apostate once wrote a letter to the priests of the pagan religion. And in this letter, he orders them to start doing charitable works because he says they've got a problem. The problem is these Jews and Christians are doing so much for the poor that people are flocking to join them and it's making the pagan religion look really bad because they're not doing anything for the poor. Because again, they, they come from a culture where you just don't. The poor are irrelevant. They're despised. You ignore them. You don't do anything for them. But Julian the Apostate is concerned that they've got a PR problem. And so he wrote to these pagan priests and he said, how apparent to everyone it is and how shameful that our own people lack support from us when no Jew ever has to beg. And the impious Galileans, that's us, support not only their own poor, but ours as well. So, the gospel brings a radical message. Probably in our culture today, there are obviously different ways in which the message of the gospel is radical and revolutionary and goes totally against the grain of the culture around us. But for these early Christians... This was a revolutionary thing for them. Part of a culture that scorned the weak, had no sympathy for the starving, these early Christians underwent a complete change of heart that caused them to reject the values of their culture and to reach out in love to those whom they used to despise. Well, why should that be? Well, I think that this is what happens when we realize what the heart of God for the poorest and weakest in the world means to us. 
when you look at the gods invented by humankind, what you see is that people project onto their gods all of their own passions and failings. After all, the human mind is only capable of inventing a god that it contains all the facets of the human mind. We're not capable of thinking beyond that. So, of course, any gods, any idols that we invent are really just projections of ourselves. But the thing is that we can do the same with Jesus. We can project onto him our attitudes towards ourselves and other people and our ideas about how the world works, and we can assume that that is how he will be looking at us. And that's a problem when we come face to face with our sins and failings. Because surely, a majestic, beautiful, pure, and holy God will not want to draw close to a spiritually impoverished and spiritually filthy sinner like me. After all, Jesus is like the rich man in this parable, with his spotless, expensive, fine linen and purple royal robes, whereas we are the beggars at the gate, dirty, diseased, untouchable. So our human minds instinctively picture Jesus approaching us with one, what one Puritan writer called a severe and sour disposition. And this is why we need the Bible, because the Bible enables us to be freed from the limits of our own understanding and to see Jesus as he really is. For from in the Gospels, we see that Jesus, far from recoiling from unclean, sinful, despised, and rejected people, was overflowing with love and compassion towards them. His heart was drawn to people like the tax collectors and the adulterers who were rejected by their communities, to those who were forced by sickness and disability to beg on the streets, and to those who had been thrown out of their homes and their towns because they were lepers or demon-possessed. And so whenever we think that we cannot approach Jesus because of the failings in our lives, we can look to the Gospels and see his heart towards each one of us, reflected in his heart towards those people he encountered there. As one writer puts it, the God revealed in the scriptures deconstructs our intuitive predilections and startles us with one whose infinitude of perfection is matched by his infinitude of gentleness. Indeed, his perfections include his perfect gentleness. It is who he is. It is his very heart. It is that heart of gentleness and compassion that overflows to each one of us. But it shouldn't stop at that point. Christ's love and compassion is not only for the spiritually poor and vulnerable, but also for the materially poor and vulnerable. It's when, 
we receive the compassion and love of Christ for us, that it should overflow from us to care for the poor and needy. And that's what caused the early church to reject the attitudes of their culture and to begin reaching out and caring for the poor in a way that made them utterly distinctive from the people around them. It is, as the verse in Acts said, because great grace was upon them all. Their hearts had been opened up. They'd had this revelation of the grace of God, of the compassion and love of Jesus towards them, that in their sin, in their spiritual poverty, in their spiritual uncleanness, Jesus had reached out to them in love and compassion and rescued them. That was the great grace that had come upon them all. And out of that great grace, they then overflowed with compassion for the poor and needy around them in a way that was revolutionary. And it's also what has caused Christians to lead the way in social action for centuries. And it's what energizes the work that our family of churches does in this country and around the world. It starts with us grasping the heart of Jesus towards us and then adopting that same heart to the people around us. Let's pray, and it will be great then to finish with another song. Let's just pray. Lord Jesus, I am so grateful to you for your heart of gentleness and compassion. Lord, I thank you that you have given us your word to give us a revelation of who you are and what your heart is like. That we can look in your word and we can see how when you walked among us, you just reached out to all those, to those who had been rejected, to those who were suffering, to those who believed themselves to be utterly unworthy, to those who had been condemned and judged by those around them. Lord, they're the very people you were drawn to, the very people you love to be around. And I thank you that therefore we can see that your heart for us is that same heart of gentleness and compassion. Lord, in those times when we feel like we have failed, when we feel low, when we feel broken, when we feel impoverished, when we are suffering, then we can look to you and we just know you look upon us with compassion. You draw near to us in those times. And I pray, Lord Jesus, open up our hearts to receive more and more your compassion and your grace. But I pray also, Lord, that we will not hoard those things to ourselves, but that we will overflow, that that very love that overflows from you towards us would be a love that then overflows from us towards the people around us. Lord, increase our compassion for this broken and needy world. And Lord, let it overflow in the way that we reach out to those around us who are vulnerable, to those around us who are in need, that we would never ignore the situations at our gate, but Lord, would take all the good things that you have given to us and use them to overflow and to bless those around us. Amen.